I do think that in ALS, there is absolutely no reason why there are so many out-of-pocket costs associated with having ALS. And I do think we now have real data to show that the largest portion of the costs associated with living with a rare disease, and ALS is among those, is out-of-pocket for families. We now have that data. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. As many listeners are all too keenly aware, the financial harms associated with an ALS diagnosis are severe. By some estimates, the annual cost to care for someone with ALS can exceed $200,000. According to ALS-focused data, one in four respondents say they have experienced debt or had to borrow money due to ALS treatment and caregiving. And the cost of medical treatment and services was the main source of stress for respondents with ALS. That is why public policies like the one recently enacted in Minnesota, which created financial support to help caregivers care for loved ones with ALS, are so important. That bill will dedicate $5 million to the state's Department of Aging to fund local organizations throughout the state that provide caregiver support programs. It's a good start, but more certainly needs to be done across the country. And that is why we support public policies that will bolster insurance coverage for new drugs, provide tax credit for caregivers, and make sure state governments support and provide funding to increase access to services that improve the quality of life for people living with ALS and their loved ones. Things like transportation, housing, nutrition, and home modification services. Because in order to truly make ALS a livable disease while we continue the search for a cure, we need to reduce all the harms associated with an ALS diagnosis, including financial harms. I recently had the opportunity to sit down and talk about the cost of rare diseases with Annie Kennedy, a veteran in the fight against ALS who currently serves as Chief of Policy, Advocacy, and Patient Engagement with the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. The foundation recently published a report on the national economic burden of rare diseases, which estimated the economic costs of 379 rare diseases reached nearly $1 trillion in the United States in 2019. Let's hear from Annie. Well, Annie, thank you so much for being with us here this week on Connecting ALS. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here with you. Yeah, well, it's a very exciting conversation for us to have. We've talked an awful lot over the years on this show about some of the financial harms and burdens faced by people living with ALS. And of course, the report we're here to talk about today takes a much broader look at at the financial harms of rare diseases, more generally speaking. Uh, Before we get into that report, though, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases, um, what you all are doing over there, and, and how you got involved in the fight? Sure, absolutely. So I've been in the rare disease community for close to three decades, and I specifically have been working in ALS. For much of that time, I started working in the ALS and neuromuscular clinics in the late 90s. And I actually was involved in a study very similar to this that actually focused just on ALS about a decade ago. We can dig into that in a moment. And at the Everly Foundation, I've been here for about three years. We are an evidence-based policy organization. So we lead policy efforts that are informed by evidence. And one of the things that we've realized is that a lot of our policy efforts are missing evidence that really is informed by patient experience and data that really reflects the lived experience of our patient communities. And so 
what we've done with this study is tried to fill a really critical gap. And we'll dig into that in just a second. Yeah, so the big number finding uh, from the report, and this is the National Economic Burden of Rare Disease Study. And as I was saying, the, the big number at the top is $1 trillion per year. That's from 2019. We assume it didn't go down. Um, those those mm -hmm. numbers tend to not go down. But what are the what are the components of that? This is the cost of uh, rare diseases, $1 trillion a year. Can you talk a little bit about some of the inputs, what makes up that $1 trillion? Yeah. So first I want to say why it's important to do this study. Sure. So the first reason it's important to do this study or why these cost estimates are even done, because I think there some people worry about doing this. They worry about, well, if we put a number to the cost of living with a rare disease or living with ALS, can that hurt us? Hmm. These cost estimates are used to prioritize policy agendas. They're used to make decisions about what types of therapies, what types of equipment are deemed on our beneficiary eligibility programs. They're used when payers are making decisions about what types of equipment will show up on your formularies. They're used when research agendas are prioritized. And I think as we all know, we consider at Every Life the amount of funding that's going into research for rare disease overall, and specifically in each of the rare diseases, to be budget dust. So there is not enough funding going into our rare diseases collectively and individually. And the reason for that is we haven't taken a step back and really demonstrated what we know within the rare disease community to be true, that there is a public health crisis in rare disease. And that's because when you look at the individual numbers around what it costs to live with a rare disease, we're only looking at direct costs. We're looking at what shows up on your explanation of benefits. We're looking at those reimbursement lines, if you will. And I think we all know we fight battles to even get reimbursed for what our physicians prescribe for us. And we're not getting reimbursed for everything that's prescribed. Many rare diseases don't even have the codes that make them eligible for what they're diagnosed with and what they're prescribed. So it's not actually showing up in their explanation of benefits. And what we believed to be the case, but we'd actually never collected the data on, was that the largest share of costs associated with having rare diseases were out-of-pocket costs, our costs yeah. that are being incurred directly by families. So we're actually not even seeing the real costs of the diseases that we're diagnosed with. So pulling that into ALS, for example, that when you're diagnosed with ALS, we all know that the cost of modifying your vehicles and your homes, the costs associated with leaving the workforce or being a caregiver and reduced time at work are exorbitant. But we have never quantified that. We don't have data around that that then is pumped into the decision-making of policymakers. So the whole point of doing this study was to take all of those lived experiences, those back-of-the-envelope calculations, and transform that into data that we now cannot look away from and that we have to integrate into the policies that we're working towards, the discussions that we're having, and the way that we're driving our policy agendas forward. So that's what we did. So you talk a little bit about the, the cost of living with a rare disease, of you know, living with ALS, living of any of the number of the rare diseases that are included in this data. Is there a component of this that touches on the more the societal cost? What role does that 
data play in terms of going to people who maybe they're important stakeholders in the public health space, but maybe their lives haven't been touched by rare disease and showing there's a, a kind of more of a macroeconomic cost associated with the rare disease community? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I think the part of this data, so there are three cost categories in this data when you look at this study. The one is the direct cost data. So that's what you see on your um, in your healthcare benefits, right? And those we even delved down deeper. What were outpatient costs? What were um, inpatient costs? What were physician visits? What were prescription costs? And we all know a lot of that's what we spend a lot of our time talking about is what is the cost of, what are the drug pricing costs right now? But what we found was that those costs were minimal compared to the cost of ER admissions, hospitalizations, the diagnostic journey, so that there were places that we could be doing better as far as the direct costs and better serving our rare disease communities and our patient communities, even in that cost category. What we found were the direct medical costs were the smallest share of the three cost categories. They were closer to about 45% of the cost that we looked at. The other two major cost categories that we looked at were indirect costs and non-medical costs. So first I'll go to the non-medical. So the non-medical are all of those costs that we referenced just earlier, home modifications, out-of-pocket costs, the things that you get prescribed but that don't get reimbursed by your insurance, all those things that you as an individual are getting saddled with, the cost of modifying your vehicle and your home, on and on and on. Bathroom modifications, bathroom equipment, that doesn't get reimbursed, et cetera. Those are all considered non-medical costs. But then the indirect cost category, so that to your question was a really important cost category to capture. And that is one that where we work to capture what are considered productivity losses. One of the things that was really interesting, we worked really closely with the patient community to do this study. And the way we captured the indirect and non-medical cost categories, these last two categories, is we did a survey of the patient community. So we worked with the community to determine what survey elements we would collect. And then working with our patient community partners, advocacy partners, including also and other organizations, we disseminated the survey through the community. And we used that survey data to then determine these other costs and categories. To your point, we used 2019 data. So pre-pandemic, so I would argue that these numbers probably astronomically increased in the pandemic. And we looked at what were the costs associated with having to leave the workplace early, having to be a caregiver, having to, there's a term called presenteeism, which means you're going to work, but you're not as productive as you normally would be if you weren't navigating appointments, having to do all the follow-up, whether it's for you or your loved one. And then there is also a term in health economics that's called early retirement. And it's the health economic term for when you leave the workplace early. And one of the things that was super interesting working with our advocates, and I'm sure this will resonate with everybody here, our advocates hated that term Hmm. because we're not talking about, I invested really well and I bought a beach house and now it's 55, I get to go live at my beach house and, you know, go off into the sunset. Right, right. The term we're talking about is a forced retirement out of the workplace. And so we actually changed that term and had to fight with the editors to be able to keep it in because what we're talking about is being pushed out of the workplace 
when you've yes. really gotten to a place in your career when you should be reaping the benefits of that, but you can no longer be in your career. And a lot of times people aren't even, some people haven't even gained their status in their social security to be reaping the rewards of their retirement when they're being pushed out of that space. So we worked to quantify all of that in that data point. To your point, that is really resonating with employer groups right now. Oh. Because that's a group that wants to be able to retain that workforce. You want that workforce at their prime in the workplace. So how do we get that data in front of employers to say, how do we make improve the workspace for people who are caregivers, for people who've been diagnosed with a rare disease or a disability, but we need to be able to optimize the work environment or optimize healthcare in order to be able to retain that workforce. We've never had a data point though to be able to work with employers around that, and now we do. And to be able to say that that actually costs employers more than their direct healthcare costs has really made employers sit up and say, we're interested in this. There's the societal impact. It's promising to hear that employer groups are um, open to discussing some of those indirect costs. I'm curious how other stakeholders who are important in, in kind of changing society around this, whether it's lawmakers, whether it's people that are in the managed healthcare systems, or all the different stakeholder groups that folks like you are dealing with trying to advocate for change, how receptive are people to discussions of indirect costs and non-medical costs at, at, you know, once we move out of those direct medical costs? Super receptive. I mean, I think one of the reasons we did this, I think I use the tip of the iceberg analogy here mm -hmm. because I think we've oh. just begun to look at the tip of the iceberg. I think we haven't even begun to go under the surface when we talk about the costs we need to be thinking about and the solutions we can begin to think about. I think one of the things that's really important about this study is we're not just throwing the numbers out in order to shock people. What we've been able to actually do is sort of pull back the veil and say, there are some real low-hanging fruit solutions that we could be thinking about. We're actually spending money in some of the wrong places for our community. We're actually driving costs in places. None of us want to have long diagnostic odysseys. None of us want to have to travel to providers. None of us want to be paying out of pocket for medical care and devices that have been prescribed to us. Those things could be reimbursed. We could reduce the out-of-pocket costs for families and actually improve healthcare outcomes. So what we need to be doing is reducing those non-medical costs and improving health outcomes. And then we could also then at the same time reduce those indirect costs. We could be getting people's productivity up, allowing people to be spending more time at, in their workplace doing what they love if they'd have to spend less time navigating appeals and navigating doctor's appointments. We can do better. We have to do better. We owe it to ourselves and our community to do better. But we, again, have never had the data to be able to have concrete conversations around what are we doing? Where are the misspends? And, it, and to my point earlier, it's really easy to focus on drug pricing as an issue. What we're not focusing enough on is spending money earlier in upstream. We need to invest more in research. We need to invest more in endpoints. We need to invest more in clinical outcomes that matter to patients so that we can improve patient outcomes. We've never had data to be able to say, 
we only looked at 379 rare diseases. We know there are between seven and 10,000 rare diseases. Mm. Of 379 rare diseases, it was a trillion dollars in 2019. Our funding, our investment in rare disease is literally budget dust. When you look at the impact, the number of Americans living with rare diseases, so our entire point of doing this study was to get the attention of policymakers and say, we must begin to match our resources and our investment into rare disease to match the urgency. We have just come out of, we're not completely of a pandemic, but we have shown that we have the innovation, we have the resources, we have the ability to deploy massive resources and coordination when we feel that we have a public health urgency on our hands. We do in rare disease. We absolutely do. And we must use that same urgency and resources to solve the issues in rare disease. And so that is why we are doing this work. That is why we are doing the studies. And that is why we are working very hard to get this information out in front of policymakers of all stakeholder groups so that they feel the urgency of our rare disease community. So now that we have data to try and help kind of crystallize what the problem is we're trying to solve, you, you mentioned, Annie, some of the low-hanging fruit that's out there. Um, what is some of that low-hanging fruit? I know you talked about getting more money into research, shortening the diagnostic journey, but from a policy perspective, where is that low-hanging fruit? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, one of the things I talked about is we only looked at 379 diseases because we don't have what's called the International Classification of Diseases Codes or ICD codes for 7,000 diseases. We only have them for 500, which means we can't actually track and count most rare diseases. If you think of it, it's like a hashtag. So once you're diagnosed with a rare disease, we can't actually count you and find you in the medical system. One of them is we need to have ICD codes for all rare diseases so that we can actually begin to collect this data. So in ALS, we do have an ICD code for ALS. We can track ALS. That's why we are grateful to have and fortunate to have a surveillance system where we can track people. We can't do that in most rare diseases. So you're invisible in the system. So that's one thing that has to change. Another is, again, we have to have better investment into research. Everybody here knows that the research investment in ALS is absolutely grossly underfunded, and it is absolutely the same in every rare disease category across the board. I think as a broad community, we have to come together and push harder for increased investment into research, into individual rare diseases, and collectively across platforms where we can be benefiting. And then we need reimbursement for therapies. So when we do have approved therapies, those therapies need to be reimbursed for those who are eligible. And we need to better understand who's eligible for those therapies, who's benefiting from them. Again, this data will show that. And then the last thing is, we saw so many cost categories that are not reimbursed for families. So durable medical equipment, um, modifications to homes, vehicles. There is no reason that prescribed medical treatments, medical foods are not reimbursed. Those are out-of-pocket costs. Those are life-saving costs for families that people are paying for out-of-pocket. That should absolutely not be acceptable in the United States of America. So now that we have data around that, we really need to sit down and have conversations around from a cost. We understand that cost benefit is what speaks to policymakers. We now have data to have conversations around how we need to shift those beneficiary profiles. So those would be the first low hanging fruit conversations. And we are actually share, we are sharing this data with any 
individual rare disease group that needs it for their individual advocacy. And we're certainly working on collective advocacy around these issues. And we will share links to the report and some of the policy implications to that in the show notes. Annie, you mentioned earlier some research that you had done uh, earlier in your career on the costs of living with ALS. Uh, Before I let you go, can you kind of dig into that a little bit and and let us know some of the takeaways that, that stay with you? Yeah, sure. Um, So earlier in my career, I was with the Muscular Dystrophy Association. I was actually the national director of the ALS division at that point. There was a study done by the Lewin Group um, that looked at four disease areas. It was SMA, myotonic muscular dystrophy, Duchenne, and ALS, where there was a cost of illness study conducted, and ALS was one of the main areas we looked at. Um, We looked at um, Medicare data and Medicaid data. So there is a cost of illness study specific to ALS. I know there have been others done at that time. One of the learnings, though, was what we did not include was that indirect and non-medical data. So while we were collecting just direct cost data, we were missing a huge piece of the pie when you're not looking at the lived costs, the personal expenses, out-of-pocket expenses. Also, VA data was not included in that study. So while it was a really important study to be collecting cost data, there were some significant cost elements unique to the ALS community that were missing from that study. But it was an important first study to understand. So I think in ALS, one of the things that's unique and a really wonderful opportunity is that there are so many data sets that can come together to help tell the full story and collect the full picture. I do think that in ALS, there is absolutely no reason why there are so many out-of-pocket costs associated with having ALS. And I do think we now have real data to show that the largest portion of the costs associated with living with a rare disease, and ALS is among those, is out of pocket for families. We now have that data. I think being somebody in the rare disease community, you always knew that, you felt it, but we have the data now to show it. And so what we encourage people to do is to help us bring this data to life in your individual advocacy and our collective advocacy as organizations and as individuals. And to your question before, as far as the societal impact, the term rare disease, I think is a little unfortunate in that I think people consider a rare disease to be somebody else's problem. And I, I think the truth is when you know that there are between seven and 10,000 rare diseases and more than more, many more than 30 million Americans living with a rare disease. And you begin to look at data like this. What we want people to understand is rare disease is not somebody else's problem. Rare disease is all of our responsibilities. And with this data, what we've been working to underscore with policymakers is we cannot look away. This data shows that the impact of rare disease is greater than the economic impact of diabetes, cancers. I mean, we now have the data to show that. And while we're not looking to compete with resources, we're deserving of resources that match this urgency. Well, an urgent note to end on here, uh, and uh, you know, really uh, looking forward to seeing how this data comes to life, as you say, and how it uh, is used to try and really push for, for the change that we need. Uh, Annie Kennedy, thanks so much for your time this week. Thank you for having me. I want to thank my guest this week, Annie Kennedy. We will share a link to the National Economic Burden of Rare Disease report in the show notes, along with ways to advocate for public policies that reduce the economic harms of living with ALS. If you like this week's episode, tell a friend, and please find time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It is a great way for us to connect with more listeners. 
Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Supervised by David Hoffman. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon.